And welcome to Tell Me Your Story, New Paradigms for a New World. I'm Richard Dugan, your host. Thanks so much for joining us. We come your way Sundays at 7 a.m. and 7 p.m., Monday mornings at 1 a.m., streaming live at richarddugan.com. We uh, have podcasts on SoundCloud, iTunes, TuneIn Radio, Spotify, Stitcher, Player FM, Blueberry. And now we have videocasts on YouTube. You can actually watch these uh, interviews as they progress. We will be giving you our guest's website in just a few moments so that you can find out more about uh, what our guest is all about and the work that he is doing. And we also uh, encourage you to spend time going within during the decade of perfect vision, the 2020s, where you will find peace and serenity and calmness there, where you can get the answers to your questions, nobody else's but yours, where you will get accurate information. I promise you, uh, the still small voice that you'll be listening to, I think, is going to 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 help you to get through whatever tumultuous times you might be going through. And if you like what we're doing, you like the guests we're bringing to you, the subjects we're talking about, and you'd like to support us financially, we would so greatly appreciate that. All you have to do is go to our PayPal or Patreon account links that are on our website at richarddugan.com. It's on the homepage as well as the missions page. By the way, if you haven't heard tell me your story before and you want to read a little bit about us go to our missions page it tells you just a little bit about what we are all about if you haven't figured that out yet in terms of uh, this particular program and our program today is going to feature uh, a gentleman of uh, of uh, I'm, i want to say great scholar he's a great scholar in the sense that uh, uh, he's he's very well educated a physicist. He's uh, he. I mean, the list goes on and on of all of the various things that he has accomplished in his life, especially with the work that he's done. But he's also an author. He's the author of a book we're going to talk about, as well as the work that he does and how all of this plays in. Uh, his name is Nick Nicholas, and I want to thank you so much, Nick Nicholas, Ph.D. I have got to throw that in there for our folks uh, for joining us here on the program. It's really a pleasure to have you with us. Well, it's a pleasure to be with you. Uh, now, I want to make sure that I get the title of this book right. Um, I've been pr- practicing and practicing. I, I, the one thing I didn't do is I didn't go on Google and say, how do you pronounce uh, Pericles? Uh, because the title of the book is, I think it's called Pericles and Me. Did I get that right? Pericles. 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 I beg your, you. Pericles. Well, see, I didn't, I didn't get much uh, mythology uh, in, in, uh, in high school. So... <laughs> But I'm familiar with Pericles. My apologies to Pericles. Uh, Pericles and Me is the work that you uh, are releasing right now. A very interesting story that is probably uh, a mixture of fiction and fact. Is that a fair fair assessment? Well, it is a, a work of fiction, of international intrigue. But it's based on a lot of my personal experiences. And uh, in the preface, I challenge the reader to separate the fact from the fantasy. And it's going to be hard to do because some of the most outrageous things actually happen. But I leave that to the reader to decide. Well, sometimes I I have to say that uh, sometimes uh, fact sometimes can outstrip fiction in some of the things that we've seen in our lifetimes. True. Uh, You know, it's just (laughs) it's like, really, that really happened? Or, or even some of the speculations as to what might happen if they flipped the on switch. I, I remember a lot of the 
concern on the part of, I'd have to say, non-scientific minds when they decided to flip the switch on on the uh, uh, the hydro uh, the the collider uh, in Europe. Yes. You know, thinking, oh, it's going to create a giant black hole. We'll all be sucked in, and it's all over. They flipped well, the switch all- on, and it didn't happen. <laughs> Well, same thing with the first atomic bomb test. Uh, there were physicists there who very, actually thought the atmosphere would catch on fire. Well, no. you know, and, and, o- oxygen and, does burn. <laughs> oxygen does burn, but uh, the atmosphere didn't, fortunately. But uh, nobody had ever released that amount of energy yeah. before. So they really didn't know. That. The chances were considered very small, but still worrisome. Yeah, sure. Well, absolutely. But of course, then you had the after effects of the radiation uh, that that moved across. Uh, And we one of the things I've heard this comment about some of the technologies that we've been um, that we have been playing with, as this person commented, that, uh, for example, uh, nuclear nuclear reactor uh, fusion and fission and so forth and so on. Uh, if you take a look at Three Mile Island, you take a look at Chernobyl, you take a look at uh, uh, Fukushima. Um, and basically, uh, this was the assessment of this person that we're babes playing with stuff. We have no clue as to what it will really do. And yet we're jeopardizing the entire species as well as all, all life on this planet because we don't really know what we're doing. And uh, politics gets involved. Saving face gets involved. Uh, the public can't handle the truth gets involved. In terms of uh, those kinds of technologies, not specifically nuclear power, but just in general, because I just saw an article about a new type of engine that probably won't be available for another uh, another couple of years, but it's it's it burns oxygen. In other words, it just draws in oxygen from the atmosphere and runs. Uh, and, and that the byproduct, I think, is hydrogen, because that's what oxygen, that's what, you know, well, that's water is H2O. Um, what about your thoughts in terms of some of these technologies? And as a physicist yourself, do you think there are certain things we're playing with, literally playing with, and then we really might want to rethink this? Because my question always comes up, just because we can, does that mean we should? Well, uh well, let's settle the nuclear question first. Okay. okay. That's pretty. That's very straightforward. Three Mile Island, uh, Chernobyl, and the Japanese incident are all three very distinct cases. Mm-hmm. Uh, the Japanese case we'll deal with directly. That was just an unfortunate episode where an act of nature collided, so to speak, mm-hmm. and literally with a with a structure and brought it down. So there's not much you can do about that except not put them on the coast. (laughs) Uh, Three Mile Island actually demonstrated that a properly designed nuclear reactor is extremely safe. Three Mile Island had a good containment vessel, a negligible amount of radiation escaped. The event occurred because of a human error and an unfortunate uh, lack of redundancy in in a critical place. Mm. Chernobyl, I know a good deal about because I spent so much time in Ukraine. I got to know the director for nuclear and radiation safety, and all you had to do was whisper Chernobyl, and he'd go off like a rocket. The the reason Chernobyl was such a disaster, it has no containment vessel. Oh. And, And the Soviet reactors did not. 
Why? Because they were poor. And two, they don't care about human life. The Soviets didn't care about human life uh, as long as they won. Uh, I'll give you an example. I have talked with a, with a Ukrainian general, three stars, pretty high up in the hierarchy. And uh, he told me how terrified the Soviets were of the United States. And I said, why? He said, because if we'd had your power, we would have launched the first strike. Oh, wow. I said, I said if you had, you would have lost 50, 100 million people. He said, the Politburo didn't care as long as they won. Now, that's just his opinion, but I have no reason to doubt it. Yeah. As far as yeah. other sciences go, it's hard to say. There's so much going on, such yeah. diverse areas. Right now, biology uh, and derivatives of biology is really the hot ticket. Yeah. And, and, you know, for example, the uh, uh, the vaccine that we now have on the way, I mean, that was a great departure from the way vaccines are usually made, is my understanding. Yeah. Uh, we're really just beginning to scratch the biological surface. Uh, I have a close friend who is a, uh, a world-famous cell biologist, and when he lectures, my gosh, it's just fascinating. So we are tinkering with things. I, I personally don't know of any technology that's going to, blow up the world or turn us all into into mutants uh the the fears on nuclear radiation didn't quite pan out we my understanding is that we did not get the level of cancer that were expected at hiroshima and nagasaki got a lot mm -hmm. but not not what the expectations were yeah we've learned a lot since then and it appears that radiation is extremely dangerous but we can contain it. Right. So I'm when I, I, I believe in science, uh, not blindly. And uh, science has its place. Politicians keep saying follow the science. But you can't just follow the science when you're making political decisions. Right. Science is one element. I used to teach courses, and I still do occasionally, on underwater acoustics and submarine warfare. And the end of my lecture, I used to admonish my students not to use analysis as a substitute for military decision-making. Analysis is one element. So if analysis tells you that if you take your submarine into this situation, it's almost a death sentence, yet a successful mission would save the whole fleet, you send the submarine in. We do that again and again. And analysis will tell you what your chances are, and you have to make contingencies mm -hmm. similar true with the virus i suppose and with with everything else it is an element is blindly saying follow the science uh, is incorrect in my opinion yeah i know that as far as uh, nuclear power is concerned setting aside uh the explanations you've given for the three specific instances that i brought up uh one of the biggest concerns of course is the uh, fuel rods the the the, the waste product f afterwards but i've also heard that they are finding ways, rather than burying it in the ground, uh, they're finding ways to sort of, sort of recycle them. Uh, and and uh, so, you know, there's, there's some inroads in that direction, which is good. I also uh, am wondering what your perspective is, and we're going to go back quite a number of years here, to uh, the work the limited knowledge of, in one sense, the work of Nikola Tesla. Tesla was a, was a genius and an, an extremely generous man. 
a truly remarkable individual. Uh, I've read a bit about Tesla. I'm not an expert in his work by any means, but he was well ahead of his contemporaries in his understanding of electricity and electromagnetic uh, phenomena. Uh, he stands out of my mind. Man died poor. Yeah. If he, if he had only executed his own patents, he would have been an incredibly wealthy man, uh, but he wanted the world to have them. He was that selfless. And he came into conflict with Thomas Edison. Edison was a completely different sort of scientist. Edison was a remarkably dogged experimenter. Mm -hmm. I mean, before, before he he made his first successful electric light bulb, he tried thousands of materials for filaments, and, and it took a man of that driven determination to to complete that. Tesla was a completely different fellow. He was he could see ahead. He's very intuitive, uh, and his intuition was usually on the mark. And uh, he produced a great many uh, innovations that we use today. Uh, if you went to a library and looked up his innovations, the list is as long as your arm. A remarkable scientist and a remarkable human being. And and that's Nothing. quite that's rather remarkable considering the uh, the reported uh, level of suppression that he experienced due to the fact that he wanted uh, everyone to have it. And uh, both Edison as well as I believe, was it not, um, I want to say J.P. Morgan, who was invested in copper and copper wires were what was using what they were using to send electricity from one place to another. And um, he didn't want to have that jeopardized. That was all about money in that respect. Is that, you know, I wouldn't be surprised. Uh, but there, there was a basic difference between Edison and Tesla. Tesla favored alternating current electricity. Mm -hmm. Edison, direct current. Now, the trouble with direct current is that the further you send it, the less current you have left due to resistance in the wiring. Tesla's alternating current, you could step up the voltage by using transformers periodically, and therefore it could send it much greater distances. Uh, direct current could not stand up to the advantages of alternating current. Uh, this word on the uh, spent nuclear fuel rods. When the fuel rods are spent, you've only used 10 or 20% of the energy in those fuel rods. There was an executive order, I believe, given by uh, Jimmy, President Jimmy Carter, that we could not reprocess our spent fuel rods. Because if you do so, you can get a small amount of fissile material, bomb-making material, out of it. And he wanted to be an example to the world. It's an example that nobody has followed. In fact, I'm told that other countries kept trying to buy our spent fuel rods because it was a very inexpensive way to get more material for your reactors. Mm -hmm. you're, you're exactly right. There's a lot you can do with them. Uh, in my opinion, the reason we haven't solved this problem is a lack of will. That's all. It's yeah. not a called technical problem. Yeah. And and it's interesting you use that term because back in the early uh, mid 1980s, uh, when we were debating uh, in uh, Congress uh, about uh, uh, I'm trying to remember it was term limits I think it was, and I was talking that with then uh, the Senator uh, John uh, John McCain I believe it was. And I asked him point blank, uh, I said, uh, you know, why is it that uh, we can't get, uh, 
Why can't we get, uh, uh, you know, you guys, why do you, oh no, it was, it was a, an amendment to balance the budget. That was it. Amendment to balance the budget. I said, what do you need an amendment for? Why can't you guys just, just do it? And his comment to me was, there isn't the will on Capitol Hill. And, and I, and of course I didn't get to follow up that cause he had to go, he had to go to the floor. Uh, but it was like, wait a minute, you're part of Congress. You're part of the Senate and the house and so forth. Why can't you exert your will to try to convert, convince some of these people that we need to do? Cause you and I, uh, Joe and John citizen, we got to balance our budgets or we have serious problems. You know, I always thought that was really, a a, a strange bit of logic that, that just, basically push the subject aside and it's a really kind of unfortunate in that regard one of the other things i wanted to ask you about and we want to get into uh, pericles and me as well uh, because i find that interesting there was a book i read many years ago that just intrigued me to know and and i have not been able to find uh, both an audible copy of it let alone a print copy of a book that was called and it was very it was uh, very intriguing to me it it was a spy kind of thing called operation destruct and a very fascinating book. I very vaguely remember, you know, some of the, some of the, uh, some of the details of it. I just remember it was a really fascinating book. Um, in terms of fact and fiction, um, it seems like fiction becomes fact after a while. Let's say if you're talking science fiction. I mean, look at Star Trek. You know, and they had those pads that they would mm-hmm. write on and all this kind of stuff. Right now, boy, it's. That's mainstream for us today. That's we take that for granted today. Uh, and then, of course, I was wait. I'm still waiting for those little light devices that Dr. McCoy would would uh, hover over your body to diagnose you. You know <laughs> that kind of thing. And fix you. And fix you. And fix <laughs> you. Right. Exactly. That's right. It, it it to me that's fascinating. Um, let's talk about Pericles and me. First of all, for those of us, myself included. Okay, Nick, tell us, who do I say was or is Pericles? Well, Pericles was the uh, political leader of Athens during its golden age. He came from a celebrated family. Uh, He was unusual in many ways. Uh, He had vision. I mean, he was a truly remarkable man. And I use him as a device in my book so that I can have conversations with Pericles and talk things through, uh, you know, nuances of the plot. Uh, Pericles and Alex uh, ruminate on human nature. They, 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 one thing they say, human nature hasn't changed over the, over the centuries. Uh, our weapons have gotten better, but we did the same sort of things. For example, uh, the, the Spartans catapulted bodies that died from plague over the walls of Athens in order to infect the Athenians. Oh, wow. So that's biological warfare, isn't it? It is. Yeah. The Athenians poisoned the Spartans' water wells. That's chemical warfare. Wow. And so on. So they did all the same stuff. And they even used some of the same politics. One example we used was the uh, ancient Athens depended heavily on the Black Sea coast for some of its grain to feed the, feed this big city. You know, a city was two or 300,000 was huge in those days. And uh, the people who ran those, those towns that dotted the Black Sea coast were becoming restive. 
So Pericles sent a fleet of some 100 triremes, these three levels of oars, warships of the Athenians that were so effective, on a friendship visit. And that seemed to settle everything down. Well, Teddy Roosevelt did the same thing with the Great White Fleet. Uh, he sent it to the Pacific, and that's and it was a friendly friendship visit, but it sent an unmistakable signal that the United States was going to protect its interests in the Pacific. So they have these kinds of conversations. Mm-hmm. And then, of course, Alex is trying to advance his interests in the plot, and he confers with Pericles, who has, they talk about the difference between political judgment and scientific judgment. They have a lot of conversations. They talk about character. They talk about what kind of judgments that you can make, touching upon morality, but not too much, because that's such a slippery subject, as we all know. Yeah. So, so Pericles was a device, and uh, I think it worked pretty well, uh, because the character of Pericles, Pericles, the history of Pericles is so deep, you could literally talk about anything with them. Mm. And, uh, and Pericles comes to him in his dreams, and he's not sure. Not sure. Goes on from there. Okay. Well, I, you know, it's what's interesting to me is uh, the fact that what you're describing almost virtually parallels where we are today uh, in terms of these conversations, these discussions over science versus politics and policy and so forth. And every time I, I, I hear these, these discussions, especially about this virus, which we've talked about a little bit on this program from time to time. Um, and what I always comes to mind are the, the, the phrases in the Declaration of Independence versus the First Amendment. Uh, and I say versus only because that's the way a lot of people see it. Uh, and in the Declaration of Independence... I've lost the audio. You've lost my audio. No. You can't I hear me? I hear you now. Okay. You came back. All right. Three, two, one. I wanted to ask you, uh, in reference to, for example, this virus we've been talking about occasionally on this program, but also the issue, as you've described, where the the science versus politics seems to be mirrored from your book to modern day, which is is really, really interesting, the the conversations. But I talk to people a lot uh, about um, uh, this aspect of people's individual rights, i.e. the First Amendment, versus... Uh, as the Declaration of Independence says, and possibly maybe it's in the preamble, I'm thinking, where it says to preserve, to to promote the general welfare. Yes. Okay. And and preserve the blessings of liberty to ourselves and our posterity, our children, our children's children, our children's children's children. And. Uh, I hear this comment about how I have the constitutional right. I don't have to wear a mask. I don't have to do this. I don't have to do that. I don't have to do, or I can do whatever I want, whenever I want, wherever I want, how I want. And so I've always placed the question out there to people who are of that mind. And again, I'm not passing judgment. If that's how you feel, you have every right to feel that way. And you have every right to say, I have the constitutional right to blah, blah, blah. But how do you weigh that against promoting the general welfare and securing the blessings because i don't believe one has to give up their individual rights i'm not giving up my individual rights by wearing a mask for example i'm exercising them 
by being considerate of other people. Do I have the virus? God, I hope not, but I don't want to give it to anybody else. And they say that's the main reason why you wear a mask. Not to protect yourself from others, but to protect others from you. So let's talk a little bit about the the, uh, the, the, the these two seemingly diametrically opposed perspectives when it comes to uh, the sciences, whether it be, uh, for example, in virtual fertilization, uh, gene splicing, CRISPR, that technology, because you were talking about that earlier in terms of um, the biological sciences are like, you know, at the top of the list these days, not to mention looking for vaccines for viruses and so forth. Um, ha- have you have you had to deal with that concept at all uh, in some of the conversations you've had or some of the lectures you've given over the years? Uh, and I don't know, maybe this is treading on that area of morality, uh, but... Um, it just seems to me like we, we need to come to some kind of consensus on this where an individual doesn't feel like their rights are being trampled. And at the same time, the society doesn't feel like their lives are being jeopardized. Well, I think that uh, there, there, there are rights, there are obligations, and there's also prudence. Uh, it's prudent to wear the mask. I personally don't know how effective it is. I have a daughter who's a cardiologist. She's not sure how effective it is. Uh, She says it has some effect. But be that as it may, uh, out of consideration for other people, I wear my mask because I don't want to worry them. Uh, So there's there's such a thing as prudence in addition to rights and so on. And it takes some judgment. Uh, We keep forgetting about judgment in our political ramblings. What's the point in worrying people to show that you're independent, to show that you're protecting your rights? It's not much of a concession to wear a mask for crying out loud. And I'm against the mandate because I just don't like mandates. Mm -hmm. They smack too much of totalitarianism. But I'm still going to wear my mask whether a politician says I have to or not. And and there's that. Uh, As far as some general grand principles on what you do, I think you have to go case by case because they're all so different from each other. Mm-hmm. But for heaven's sakes, let's just be prudent about these things. Uh, yeah. I, I, I have I have a car that'll do 150 miles an hour, and I love to drive that way. I enjoy the German autobahns, but you can't because Americans don't have the same lane discipline that the Germans do. <laughs> You're going to get yourself killed. So it's prudence. Uh, yeah. That, I don't think there's much more to say about it than that. Okay. It's interesting. Uh, Nick Nicholas is my guest. Uh, Pericles and Me is the title of this book. How did, and I've, I've noticed this with a lot of our guests who have had uh, very uh, intellectual uh, uh, leanings early on in their careers, and then suddenly uh, this other area pops up in their lives where I'm going to write some fiction, or I'm going to write, or I'm going to paint, or I'm going to create music and so on and so forth how did writing begin for you at an early age or did this was this something that came up uh, later in your career that you said i've got these ideas and i've got to get them down on paper well first of all scientists write all the time sure articles papers and so on and, and for me 
that was the burdensome part. I have a character flaw when it comes to being a scientist. And once I figure out how something works, I want to move on to something else, but I have to stop and write a report or else nobody will pay me. So uh, <laughs> I had to do that. As far as Pericles and me goes, uh, I have a lot of friends and we, we converse a lot and we tell each other stories and people have been urging me for decades to write a book about my experiences because I've worked in the Middle East. I've worked all over Europe. I was very early into Ukraine after the Soviet Union broke up. When I got there, it was still very Soviet, had somebody following me, uh, which who became who became my advisor because I told him he could walk with me and do this in a civilized manner. And pretty soon he was my advisor. But all of these things bundled together is what generated Pericles and me. And I sat down and I wrote it in three months. It's about 400 pages and there was no outline, no plan, nothing. I just followed wherever my intuition, wherever my uh, feelings took me. And I think it turned out reasonably well. It's not great literature. I remember my, my literature professor at college saying to me, none of you is going to be a Shakespeare or Scott Fitzgerald, but by God, you're going to learn how to write a simple declarative sentence. And that has stood me in good stead. It's also stood me in good stead all the times I had to converse and negotiate through an interpreter. Ah. Because, when you, because when you talk through an interpreter, you can't use convoluted language or slang. It will, it will, it will obscure the meaning. So, you know, today we're going to talk about the next step in our project, period. The next step is, period. And you go on like that. And that's about the way I wrote Pericles and me. And, uh, uh, I like the book. I hope other people will too. Uh, it's uh, my friends who have read it, who know me well, all liked it, and uh, I hope that's an indication of what the general public will do. But writing it was a was a release for me because I saw a lot of things that were unpleasant, politically stupid, operationally stupid, and they always they always bothered me. Mm -hmm. uh, for example. When the Soviet Union broke up, there was a bill called the Nunn-Luger Bill, because Senators Nunn and Senators Luger sponsored it, to put up $400 million to take down the nukes that the fragments of the Soviet Union had within them. And people in the United States, especially government people, fell on this like it was the carcass of a beach whale. That money was supposed to take down the nukes. And they were trying to capture it for the U.S. national labs and for other purposes because defense funding suddenly dropped because the Cold War was over, so to speak. That sort of thing uh, you see and you just shake your head and you wonder, I know you need money to keep your organization going, but this is this this was such an important mission that uh, you didn't want to take the money away from that. In fact, I was invited to Ukraine by the Ukrainian government to advise them on taking down the nukes. And uh, they, they gave me pretty much carte blanche to go see what I wanted to see. And I really got a good look at what the Soviet Union was, was all about. There's not a thing wrong with the people there. They're decent people, they're hardworking, they're good family people. They certainly would treat you, if, you treat, if you're decent with them, they're decent in return. But the system they lived under was horrendous. Mm -hmm. and, and still, 
there are people there. There were people there when I was traveling around there. There were people there who still believed in the communist system because that's all they ever heard. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, we can talk forever about all of that, but uh, suffice it to say that if that's all you ever hear, you're going to believe at least part of it. I mean, the Nazis understood that very well. Joseph Goebbels, the minister for propaganda, is the one who coined the, the saying, if you say something long enough and loud enough, people will believe it. Yeah. And that seems true. And that's what worries me now. Our our news reporting uh, is, is so slanted one way or the other. There always has been slant news reporting. There are newspapers that hated FDR, mm-hmm. but there are also papers that supported him. And uh, that's all right in a democracy, but in a country that's closed, yeah, so the union was. It's it's hard to overcome that. Well, that's one of the reasons why we promote choices and knowledge of those choices. We encourage people sure. to to become more educated about the different possibilities. And and when you talk about science, for example, one invention leads to another, leads to another, leads to another, because somebody sees that thing and says, you know, I I could improve on that, or I could probably use that to help to facilitate the creation of this other idea that I have and so on and so on and so on. And so we have this evolutionary process that's going on. But if you never see any of this stuff, you're never, you're most likely never going to, to create it. And it's, it's, and it's never going to, and things are never going to move forward and we're never going to evolve. And and that's people we have a hard time explaining are people like Nikola Tesla who come along and, ignore everything and go off in such a radically different d- direction. We don't know how he ever got there. Uh, and, and that's where his intuition comes into play. Yeah. Uh, Tesla was one of those people who had an intuition. Isn't just guessing. No, no, uh, no, not at all. No, I mean, it's based on your, uh, on, on your training. It's based on your experiences. It's also based on your thought processes. And, you know, some people like Tesla and Einstein have unique thought processes. Einstein used to imagine, he had these thought experiments he would do. For example, he imagined what it might be like to travel along a light beam. And from that, he derived his theory of special relativity. And because, but, but the mathematics, it's a highly mathematical theory, but the mathematics is not what makes it. What makes it was his imagination. And then he had to find the mathematics to express that, that, that imagination in a form that would be useful to others. Yeah. Generally speaking, these kinds of, of intuitive breakthroughs occur when someone imagines something and then he goes back and fixes up the scientific steps behind it so he could explain it to others. And, and that's what Einstein did a lot of. Did you uh, do a lot of that yourself as you were working and creating and so forth? You know, I never thought about it, but, you know, after I retired, uh, I did reflect on it a bit. And yes, I did. I did that. Sometimes it can lead you a little astray. I recall one formulation, mathematical physics, where uh, it was brilliant. I'm telling you, it was the greatest thing since sliced bread. (laughs) And I took it to a scientist I knew who was a very bright, a Korean, brilliant man. And he liked it. That made me feel a little better. But then I went back and made some calculations of simple cases whose answers I knew, and I got the wrong answer, and I knew something was wrong. It took me about two weeks to figure it out, and I went back and showed it again to my friend, Kwan Yu, and he used to do this Charlie Chan act when he felt like it. And he leaned back in his chair, and he said, ah, a subtle but fatal error. 
And uh, you can, you know, your intuition can lead you astray, but that's all right. If it's, if it's if most of the time leads you in the right direction, that's just part of the, the scientific game, if you want to call it that. And maybe that being led astray is supposed to reveal to you a certain element that you need uh, once you get back on track. Well, in um, this case, it did. Yeah. It did. So, I, I was able to reformulate the thing and, and get on the right track. That's yeah. true. And at the same time, of course, uh, when we spend time going within, as I uh, promote here on this program, sometimes all we need to do is we need to just we need to stop. We need to calm down. We need to find that place of equanimity, if you will, that peaceful place, uh, so that we may be able to ponder, as you talked about uh, earlier, um, what it is we're doing. Maybe we need to think about so- sometimes you have to get away from it in order for the ideas to come. I mean, I've seen that happen more times than not where people will actually say, you know what, I'm going to take a break and I'm going to go do whatever. I'm going to do something else that takes my mind off of this. And somehow the, the idea suddenly comes or the solution or the answer to whatever part that they're working on just arrives. I mean, I've had that happen where my wife, of course, she's very concerned as most wives are about their husbands getting up on ladders with chainsaws. And I was trying to fell a tree. And uh, so um, uh, I have the ladder and I moved the ladder around this uh, dead uh, tree, this pine tree that I had cut all the limbs off of and everything. But I still needed to bring it down from uh, maybe 15 or 20 feet down to eight or 10 feet so that I could deal with it. But I didn't want it to fall down on the fencing that was nearby. So I moved the ladder around three or four or five times around the tree and I could not for the life of me figure out which was the best position. And I said, you know what? Uh, I don't have to do this today. I'm going to come back to this. So I put the chainsaw away, left the ladder against the tree, went in the house. The next day I came out, put the ladder in the first spot, took care of it. Everything worked out perfectly. And that was just all I needed to do. And it and everything worked out just fine. So sometimes we do need to take that time. And we encourage people uh, always to do that. We're talking with Nick Nicholas. He is the author of Pericles and Me, a, a fictional book with a few factual pieces of information that uh, I want to talk a little bit about as well. You uh, uh, and part of that has to do with the fact that you are very, very proud of and not in, not in an egotistical way, I might add, of your Greek heritage. Are you not? I am. Um both of my parents were Greek immigrants. They met in the United States and married. Uh, my father was a Greek Cypriot. So he came here. He was just a boy. He came here alone. Uh, my mother is from Corinth, which had been once upon a time the biggest city in the world until the earthquakes and the Romans got through with it. And uh, they valued the traditional Greek cultural uh, elements, education, they valued hard work, they valued. Uh, my sister uh, took a course in sociology when she was at Pitt, and the professor asked why so many Greeks own restaurants. She didn't know, even though her father owned one and her uncle owned one. And he finally said, because Greeks are the only people who are willing to work hard enough to start a restaurant, which is a very difficult business. So they're hardworking. They valued education greatly. I was the first one in my family to go to college. Now in my family, we've got MDs, PhDs, engineers, lawyers, you name it. And it all stemmed from that original 
uh, Greek heritage. In addition to going to public school, I went to a Greek school where we studied the Greek language, uh, Greek culture, and the Greek Orthodox religion. Uh, the teacher was, or the headmaster, was chairman of the classics department at the University of Pittsburgh, and he taught in the Socratic fashion. I realized when I got to high school that we had discussed the, the um, postulates of plane geometry in Greek in his class. He had a discussion once class once a week where he would ask us to express our opinions, but you had to do it in Greek. So uh, that was a pretty, uh, uh, actually it was a good class. We all liked it very much. And so education was important. I, I'm a graduate of Carnegie Mellon University, it was Carnegie Tech when I went there, where I got my bachelor's degree. I got my master's degree at Drexel in Philadelphia and my PhD at Catholic U in Washington. Why did I go to three schools? Because I mistakenly thought after I graduated from college, I'd know a lot. I didn't think I did. So I went and got a master's degree. Surely then I'd know a lot. I still didn't think I did. So I went and got a PhD and I still don't know a lot. That's the way I see the world. But I know a little bit and I know enough to, to have a, a good profession. My profession, very unusual. Uh, early in my profession, I worked on the Apollo program. I was the engineering officer in the first simulated Apollo flight. I spent eight days in an Apollo capsule doing everything it takes to fly to the moon. Of course, we never left the ground, but we learned a lot from that, from, you know, about the workloads and how things would work out. Uh, I worked in a great many different areas of physics and unusually broad stuff. And I always went for the interest. That's why I traveled to the Middle East, to Europe and whatnot. Well, I'll tell you that uh, a couple of things. Number one, the uh, our, our landlord, who has since passed away uh, on the property where we live, he also worked for NASA. He actually helped engineer the lunar module, which I thought was very interesting, uh, that, lands, that, that landed on the moon. And then, of yeah. course, subsequently uh, took off from there. So this is, this is intriguing. The other part is <clears throat> that I have a great affinity for uh, the Greek culture, not because of my heritage, but because back in my early days of broadcasting, I used to produce a program uh, with hosts, and they would bring in all the materials, uh, called the All New Greek Family Hour. And uh, <laughs> I only learned a few words of Greek. Opa, efaristo. That's about as far as my Greek goes. Um, That's all you need. Baklava is good, too. <laughs> and gyro. But... Um, uh, I loved being around these folks, and, and we would go to the Greek festival each year uh, at, at the Greek, Greek Orthodox Church in Phoenix, uh, and it was just, it was a wonderful, wonderful time, and, and uh, I, like I said, I still remember the days of producing that program, and, and uh, even had a sort of a taste of it when I married my first wife, <clears throat> who was not Greek, but she was, uh, uh, she and her family were part of the Byzantine Rite of the Catholic Church, which is very Orthodox. Well, yes, it is. then you think about the Greek Orthodox Church and and the then so forth. And I'm curious about your upbringing, uh, philosophically, as I like to put it, uh, into in that regard. I would assume that you grew up in the Greek Orthodox Church. I did, I did. In fact, the name of our church was Saint Nicholas, which I always imagined was named after me, but alas, it wasn't. Uh, no, in fact, I started writing a second book, and the title is "I'm Not a Greek. I'm from Pittsburgh." <laughs> And I got that title at my favorite watering hole in Heidelberg, Germany. I spent a lot of time in Heidelberg, a great town. And uh, 
This was shortly after the Greek national soccer team had won the European Cup, which was a big surprise because they had no big stars. And the German came up to me and he said, you Greeks must be very happy. And I said, I'm not a Greek. I'm from Pittsburgh. And all the Americans in the place knew exactly what I was saying. But the Europeans were very puzzled by the whole thing. They don't they don't quite grasp that we Americans, many of us have two heritages, so to speak. And yet I grew up. I was a thoroughly American kid. I went to American public schools. I played sports, American sports all my life, and considered myself an American uh, with Greek heritage, but mm-hmm. an American nonetheless. And yeah. many of us, many of us have that. Uh, and uh, so uh, that was that was a good way to grow up, I thought, because it gave you an outlook that's broader than you might otherwise have had you not had some ethnic heritage. Uh, to uh, to to go along with your American upbringing. Do you feel that maybe some of that is lost today from the standpoint that maybe some people are going a little bit overboard with their, their heritage from where they've come from here in the United States? Because I hear this comment on, on occasion from certain groups of people who say, we're losing our culture because we're being inundated by all of these other people who want to force their culture on us. And, and yet this is supposed to be a melting pot where we're supposed to, to learn from one another. I mean, I, who doesn't love going to some of these va- basic, uh, I'll call them ethnic fairs, like the Greek fair or the Irish fair or the Italian fair or any of the other ethnicities uh, or even the parts of town, like up in San Francisco. I know they have uh, a Chinatown and, and, and there are different parts all over the country where you have certain areas where these certain ethnicities have been living for generations peacefully, calmly, and other people come there from other uh, ethnicities to experience the culture, to to try the food and even the clothing and so on and so forth. And it just seems like there's a lot more, I want to say, animosity towards the other cultures because people are, I don't know, people are feeling infringed upon. Have you ever felt that way or experienced that or has that ever been a a thought of yours as far as the United States uh, being this beautiful melting pot of of different uh, cultures? Well, first of all, as a child of immigrants, I'd be a terrible hypocrite if I did feel that way. (laughs) Secondly, historically, uh, as a boy, I remember hearing people decry all the Eastern Europeans who were coming here. But, uh, you know, I worked in a steel mill for a while. And uh, if without Eastern Europeans, there would have been no steel mills. I mean, all their names ended with an I. And, uh, and, and I've heard people talk about too many Italians came here. Well, I don't agree. So that, there's nothing new about that. Yeah. I don't feel threatened by it because let me turn this, let me turn myself inside out in the sense that my Greek heritage is very strong within me. It's strong within my children, too, although in a different way. Mm-hmm. You know, they're, they're one generation down the road. Uh, they did not have to hear someone referring to their parents as foreigners. Uh, and, you know, I feel my heritage strong. I like it, but it doesn't make me less of an American. Mm-hmm. By God, I'm as American as anybody. It's the only country in the world when I was growing up where I could have gone and gotten a PhD and traveled the world. You couldn't do that in Germany because you had a you were sorted out at the age of 12 as to whether you were going to be an academic or not. 
here we, we get to choose this. As far as the current wave of immigrations, I mean, I believe in legal immigrations, and let's just leave that. Let's just leave that right there. Okay. I got no, I got no heartburn about that. I had a colleague at Penn State University, uh, Mexican heritage, but his family has lived in Texas for about a hundred years, and he had his career as a helicopter pilot, uh, fighting in Desert Storm. Is he less American than you and I? No, of course not. Even if he'd never been in the military, he's no, he's no less an American. So I think those cries are either trumped up or they're by people who are foolish, prejudiced, and in my mind, quite stupid. Uh, I've, also learned, I've also learned, too, you need to know your audience. I had a gal I was working with at a radio station back in Phoenix, and we were chatting away. It was about another uh, programmer that would come in with his entourage. And they were from Mexico, but they were here on visas and what have you. But they came in dressed to the nines. I mean, beautiful, immaculate suits and tie and the whole thing. And they would come in and do their program overnight uh, and so forth. And I, my observation was, as I was sharing with her, I said, my gosh, they're so arrogant. I mean, they just, they're so full of themselves. And she says, no, 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 you're misreading it. It's not that they're arrogant. That's confidence. That's the confidence yeah. they have. So then I started chatting with her more, and I said, so what about your, your Hispanic heritage? And boy, she turned on me, uh, could have hit me with a two-by-four. She was, she was mad. She says, I am not. And she, she didn't have any problem with Mexicans, but she wasn't from Mexico. She That's was, right. Her family was from Spain. That's, I, I, I've encountered that as myself. <laughs> <laughs> in, fact, in fact, my Mexican Marine... Did not like being called the Hispanic. He said, I'm not Hispanic. Damn it. I'm Mexican. Yeah. And, and so, you know, we create these categories and we populate them through our imaginations and we sometimes step on people's toes and they tell us. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, they do. They do indeed. I know that uh, uh, as a kid growing up, I was born legally blind. And then, of course, as uh, public, po political correctness started to creep in, in, I guess, the late 70s and in the 80s, they used to refer to it as visually challenged. And I said, no, 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 no. I'm not challenged. I'm blind. OK, now I could see well enough to to ride a bicycle and so forth and and read read large print books and what have you until my 38th year. And I had a lens implant. Uh, and uh, so uh, it's one of those things where uh I didn't ever have a problem with that. As a matter of fact, I created a wonderful little joke. I said, uh, first of all, as I mentioned to you, I'm from Phoenix, Arizona. I'm a, a native-born Phoenician, and I was born blind. So I am a Phoenician blind. And, uh, <laughs> that's pretty and that's, good. I love that. And that's, and, you know, that's what I used to tell people. You know, and I didn't have a problem with it. And the blind people that I associated with in early days of my career, because I was working for a radio reading service for the blind and visually impaired. Um, they didn't have a problem with being referred to as blind. Uh, th their problem, of course, was the fact that they <laughs> there weren't sufficient accommodations at that particular point in time. And of course, ADA came along and so forth. But it is interesting how um, the more things change, it sometimes does seem like, as you kind of uh, expressed, they kind of stay the same. And that's why well, on this program, we try to Give a diversity, if you will, or a, 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 as many different points along the circle, as we like to say. There's an event going on in the circle. 
And we want to have people moving around that circle to see it from as many perspectives as possible. You know, you've heard the old uh, the, the old uh, uh, story about uh, a car accident and 10 people saw it. Well, you're going to get 10 different answers to the questions about what they saw because each one was standing in a different place. You remind me of the debriefing I got from the CIA <laughs> after my first trip to Ukraine. Uh, my partner and I were in a skiff. That's a room lined with copper so no one can spy on you electronically. Sort of like a Faraday cage? That's right. Okay. And uh, it was called a skiff in those days. Mm -hmm. And uh, we were there for eight or nine hours. And uh, uh, after it was done, they said, you guys are great. And I said, well, thank you. And they said, no, no, you don't understand. You know the difference between what you saw, what you were told, and what you deduced. And I'm thinking there, I was alarmed. I'm thinking, don't your agents know the difference? (laughs) (laughs) But it relates to what you said about the 10 people in the accidents. Regarding... Sober caves for people and their problems. Our oldest son has been deaf since birth. Mm-hmm. Uh, he now has a uh, he now has an implant, so he can hear somewhat. And his first day driving to work, he said, "Truck went by and scared the hell out of him." And he said, "I never knew what you're hearing. People have to put up with." <laughs> in any case, he persisted. Uh, he went to college on an athletic scholarship. He's an engineer, a, a, a top flight engineer. He's doing very well in life. Uh, and I'm, I'm very, I'm very proud of him. He had that to overcome. And that, I believe, overcoming that hearing problem. And he has no, he had no heartburn with people telling him he was deaf. They wanted to use the term hearing impaired. He said, not, like you, he said, I'm not hearing impaired, I'm deaf. Yeah. And, I've, uh, and I've, also, I've also come up with the phrase, it, it is not a disability. It's a, it's a perceived limitation it limit as as you just described with your son uh it it limits you only as much as you allow it to that's that's true that's true up to a point i mean there's something sure. obviously he can't he he can't hear things that are at a distance sure he's compensated he's got eyes that are like vacuum cleaners it's one of the things that made him that's one of the things that made him such a good athlete because he could see things developing that Hearing people might not have seen because they're relying on their hearing and not their eyes as yeah. much as he he had to do everything with his eyes. Yeah. So, yeah. So you're right, though. You, people have problems. They have disabilities. And some overcome them and some don't. Yeah. Now, you come across to me uh, as uh, a very proud father of I your am. children. Don't get me started on the other three. <laughs> we'll be here for hours well i'll tell you it's 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 because because they did they they've done well they were loving uh we never had any serious problems with the kids well i i would uh, say that uh my parents uh, because i've had an opportunity believe it or not i've had them on this program uh and uh they feel the same way about us as uh, you do about your children and oh, that's what's interesting. And when you made the description, and I heard this years ago, even before the Cold War was over, that it, the Russian people in particular, in then the USSR, they didn't have a problem with Americans. No, they they had the same family structure. They had the same love and hate and frustration and fear of their life and, and their children and keeping them safe and, and happy and so forth as we did. 
It was always the government. And that was the one thing that sort of ended my uh, feelings in regards to the quote unquote Cold War, that this ain't about the people, the citizens. This is about the two governments. It never was. Yeah. It never was really. uh, uh, My uncle, my mother's brother, uh, was a soldier during World War II. Um, Highly decorated. Uh, I don't think he was a citizen when he joined the Army. He was a citizen after the war. They they made him a citizen. And uh, he met up with the Russians at the Elbe River. And he said they were just fine. He said, they tended to drink too much, but so did we, he said. (laughs) (laughs) You know, it's it's seldom between people. Look, you got to cut these people some slack. Don't forget, Stalin was a monster. And and if if he even suspected that you might be thinking about not agreeing with him, you're dead. Yeah. There were people in the Politburo who took their lives in their hands when they stopped uh, the killings because he would kill you and then everyone who in your family and then everyone who knew anybody in your family and he would have wiped out the population if they let it go. Yeah. So well. That, that, that's the difference between them and us. They lived under a monster, and we never did. And the only difference uh, here is that uh, you're, you aren't killed. You're just fired. <laughs> you're just fired. That's right. Yeah. That's right. This, To me, this is interesting how—and uh, I, I would venture that uh, quite a bit of what we've talked about here on the program is weaved into Pericles and Me. The book that uh, that Nick Nicholas has written, what is the website you want people to go to to find out more well, about that book, but also about what you are all about? All they have to do is input my name, and, and the site will come up. Uh, the name is Nicholas C. Nicholas. Nicholas C. Nicholas.com? Yes, uh, no, just Nicholas C. Nicholas, okay. and it comes right up. All right. Uh, it's available on, on Amazon, on Barnes & Noble, and all the other sites. An audio version is being done as we speak. Oh, excellent. Love them. By the way, I was listening to audio books in my early years, uh, my single digits and teens, long before Audible was even thought of. They were called Recordings for the Blind and Talking Books mm-hmm. for the Blind. And uh, that's where I uh, started with my metaphysical primer, Autobiography of a Yogi, which I have listened to I who knows how many thousands of times in the last 40, 45 years. Uh, and I'm 60 today, and I still uh, still love that book and many others as well and i know folks are going to enjoy pericles and me as well and we will be linked to your website nick so that people can go straight there from our website uh and uh, get in touch with you and and find out about the work that you've done and i have to tell you it's fascinating from my perspective because i loved watching the launches of the saturn fives in the 60s and early 70s with apollo uh and i have to say that the moon landing mission of Apollo 11, and this is just my observation, was the last time that not only this country, but virtually the entire world at that time was focused on something of such a positive nature. And I honestly do not believe we have had anything like that since. I agree. And and it's really unfortunate because, my God, if we can get to the moon in 10 years, uh, there's 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 nothing that we can't accomplish. 
No, I think you're quite right. And by the way, I'd like to recommend another metaphysical book to you. It's called Zen and the Art of Motorcycle Maintenance. I've heard of it, and I'm going to get a copy. I'll, I'll go on Audible and get it. <laughs> it's, it's not only entertaining, it's it's insightful as well. Yeah. Well, I, I greatly appreciate the time that you have given us here on the program. I do have three final questions that I would like to ask you. I ask all of my guests. You might have addressed the answers uh, within the context of what we've talked about today, but I do like to ask the questions pointedly uh, here at the end of the program. Before I do that, however, I need to let our listeners know that the program is here on Sundays at 7 a.m. and 7 p.m., Monday mornings at 1 a.m. We do stream live at those times at richarddugan.com. The podcasts, unlike the broadcasts, are available on SoundCloud, iTunes, TuneIn Radio, and a bunch of other locations that uh, you will find. We're also on YouTube with the video cast now, so you can go to Richard Dugan, that's the channel, and you can certainly listen and watch these interviews and see our guests, which is really kind of nice. We can't meet in person uh, directly, but we can meet in person virtually, and it's always nice to be able to do that. And we will be linked to uh, Nick Nicholas' website so that uh, you can continue uh, your evolutionary process, your transformation through the writings that he's done and even some of the work that he's done that may very well intrigue you as much as it has me. And if you'd like to support what we're doing, please do so at PayPal or Patreon accounts. We have the links on our website for you to do so, uh, and we hope that you will. And we thank you, thank you, and thank Thank you for the support you've given and the support that you will give. So the three questions that I will start with number one are, who is Nick C. Nicholas? Who am I? Uh, I've never been asked that question before. Uh, I'm a fellow who had the good fortune to grow up in a wonderful family in a terrific country, and I have traveled, I've studied, I've played a lot of sports, I love the sports, as you alluded to before, it's a good counter, you, you need to have a counter to what you work at, and sports was a counter, I mean, more than once I went out to play tennis when I was stumped and came back with the answer, and that's about all I can say about me, I have a wonderful family, four great children, a, a wife who has supported me faithfully throughout the years although sometimes she had to grit her teeth but she did it <laughs> well and we hear her chuckling in the background and we're glad that she's with you yeah. <laughs> Sorry. Yes, now, yes, no 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 apologies necessary i think that's wonderful my wife used to join me on these programs when we uh, did it at another station and uh so i i'm i'm grateful that you and your husband are there together second question what is it that you hope to or want to achieve through the work that you are doing now well, uh, I like to entertain people with my writings while informing them. And that, that's fun. And, and, you know, I don't write with outlines and things. I mean, my sister uh, also also writes, and she was an English teacher, so she's got the technique. Boy, she, she was shocked that I didn't use an outline to write my book. I just sat down and it poured out. It took me three months. I wrote every day, and I enjoyed it. So that's what I'd like to do. I've I'm not so sure that the other two books I'm writing, and the, the third one is entitled How I Won the Cold War, and uh, they're intended to amuse and also to inform. How I Won the Cold War will do that because of the subject matter. Hmm. Uh, I'm Not a Greek, I'm from Pittsburgh, is about the more entertaining aspects of my career, and it ends up 
I think so far representing an era that is long gone. I mean, schools are different. Everything's different now. Yeah. Not, not worse, not better, just different. Mm -hmm. And the final question, what is your life's purpose? My life's purpose. That's a hard one to answer. I'm not sure. Uh, my life have my life didn't have a foreordained purpose. Uh, it could achieve some things as every life does. And I guess those are the purposes. I mean, I, I had an interesting career. I have, I leave behind me four children at this counting nine grandchildren and they're all different from each other. There, there's no two, there are no two people in my family who are the same. <laughs> And that's the wonderful thing about human beings. Yeah. Our, we, we all blather about diversity, but the real diversity is the difference between individuals, not the differences between ethnic groups. I would agree with you there. Absolutely. And I thank you again for giving us so much time here on the program, both you and your wife, uh, to share your story as well as the story of Pericles and me. And it's available on Amazon. The Audible is coming. And uh, we will look forward to that. And again, my great appreciation for the time that you've given us today, Nick. My pleasure. I'm Richard Dugan. I want to thank you for listening to Tell Me Your Story, New Paradigms for a New World, as we give you choices and knowledge of those choices to help make your dreams come true. Until our next broadcast, podcast, videocast, love to love.